are continuing, if you've been with us, we've been in a series called The Stewarded Life. We've been looking at how God has called us to, uh, we are responsible for the diff- different domains of life, different aspects of life, different areas of life, and we're called to cultivate them, to steward them, to oversee them, to focus on them. And here's the thing, sex, sexual desire, sexual intimacy, it's something that we normally don't think about when we think about stewarding our lives. Yet today, you could almost argue perhaps more than ever, definitely as far as in the context of our lives, it's more important than ever. Because many of us aren't even sure how to approach the topic of sex, let alone what am I to do with the, the sexual desires that I have, that God has given me. Uh, I want to kind of give a picture to start us out. I've used this before. I can't remember if I've done it on Sundays or just as salt or whatnot. Uh, but my, my kids, shortly after, we moved into our house here in Columbia three years ago. And uh, it has a big backyard. We have a pool in the ground. It's an amazing. But now we have a trampoline. Like it's, I'm like, this is Disney World for, for children, right? Like this, this yard is amazing. We have all these toys out. And, and I walk outside about a week after living here, or uh, a few weeks after living here. It was in the spring, actually. It was a few months. And, and my son is over by the gate, and there's a padlock on the gate, and he's, he's literally got a rock, and he's just boom, boom, <laughs> in the padlock. And I was like, Calvin, where are you doing? And he was like, I'm trying to go out in the yard. I was like, well, this is the yard. And he was like, I want to go out there. I want to see what's out there. There's a forest beyond the yard. There's obviously the neighborhood. I was like, no, play with all, everything here. And then, you know, so he went on. All right, Dad. It's a day or two later. I walk outside. Now Calvin has got Marilyn, my oldest daughter, over by the fence like this. Calvin's on her shoulders. He's trying to climb over the fence at this point to get out of here. I'm like, what are you doing? And Claire, our littlest one, is just standing there like, yay, little cheerleader. <laughs> here we go. Freedom, right? Life. And, and I was like, what are you guys doing? They're like, we want to go over there. You know, they want to see what's outside the yard. Let's go explore. There's freedom out there. There's life out there. And, and the reason why, and I was like, no, look at, look at the, everything here. I, I, I tell you that, give you that quick picture. Capture what I think is, is often our approach when we think about sex. That often what we think is God, because we're going to be looking at God's design for sex, we're going to be looking at uh, the context that God has called us to with our sexual desires, with sexual intimacy. And, and we tend to live our lives because of a lot of the influences in our lives. And I'll share a little bit about my upbringing. I've shared before, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. So I have all kinds of extra biblical understandings of sexuality as I grew up. And so the default was, in my mind was, I got to get beyond the fence. I got to get beyond this, this thing that God has given, this, this kind of context. What I'm going to, to use another biblical example instead of a yard, a garden. That God has said there's this, this context, this garden, this, these parameters, this area where I have given you to enjoy, to delight. And yet we spend so much of our lives thinking about wondering if God is just keeping actually life from us keeping delight from us. And we spend so much of our life trying to kind of climb over the fence. What could be over there? Then if I could get there, then I'd be free. Then I'd have life. And so what I want to do today, because there are a lot of ancillary issues, topics, details we could talk about around sex. What I would like to do is, is highlight, because I think when we live our lives that way, what happens is we end up actually 
having a low view of sex. Whereas what the Bible presents is a very high view of sex. And so I want to present a high view of sex, a biblical view of sex this morning, and then we'll consider how we steward it. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for, Lord, when, this, this gift that you have given us. And yet, Father, so often it's, it's a source of some of our deepest brokenness, hurt, pain, confusion. And so, Lord, this morning, would you help us align our, our hearts, point our minds and our souls towards your vision, your calling, what, what, your, your, your vision for where sex in its place in our lives. Spirit, as, as we go through these things, Lord, we'll be hitting on things tangentially without being able to go down all of the different topics. So I pray that you would just guide our hearts through this. As there are many things that will come up in our, in our minds, a lot of hurts, a lot of regrets. Also, Lord, a lot of joys, a lot of happiness. For some of us, sorrows. And, and Spirit, would you, would you just guide our hearts, tether us to this vision of, of how you've designed sex? And Spirit, would you bring through that and focusing our eyes on you, Christ, would you give us freedom? Would you give us healing? Would you give us a renewed desire to follow you, Lord, and honor you in this area? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to look at first uh, what I'm going to call the Garden of Delight. What is the vision that God has given for us of what, what sex is meant to be? And then second, what we're going to look at is what happens when we venture outside the garden. Why do we want to venture outside the garden? What are some of the things that lure us outside the garden? What does it look like? And then third, how do we cultivate? How do we, how do we steward our sexual desires, sexual intimacy? Uh, so first, then the Garden of Delight. So open your Bibles to Genesis 2. Uh, we'll be in Genesis 2 this morning, and uh, we, we've gone back to Genesis 1 several times throughout this series, uh, and, and the reason is because it's the beginning of the Bible, God creates the world, we see his original creation of man, we've seen that the call to stewardship is the call to really, the call to being, of what it means to be made in the image of God, to join in in God's goodness, to join in his delight in cultivating all the raw materials of creation, all the domains, the areas of our lives, cultivating them for his glory and our joy. So, but Genesis 1 is going to, and that cultivation of delights is going to set the stage for Genesis 2. Genesis 1 is a zooming out, big picture of God creating the heavens and the earth. Genesis 2 then zeroes in, it kind of zooms in all of a sudden like it's a kind of that picture of the earth from outer space and then it goes and it zooms in into the garden where Adam is there, the first man, and it gives us a picture of what it looks like to steward. And one of the aspects that immediately comes up among others is sex. So Genesis 2, starting in verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So what does it mean, not good that man would be alone? This isn't saying that creation is bad, everything's gone bad. If, if you don't have another person, everything's bad in your life. No, what it means is that there's, there's an incompleteness, something that isn't yet the full expression of God's creation. And so God then creates the woman 
Now note, one of the things here that, and I'm going to have to, some of these just hit as we go, because here's the thing, I'm aware, <laughs> we're all aware, uh, that sex is a heavily politicized um, topic. And so they're all, we could do an entire, probably, I would say, minimum 12 sermon series on sexuality. That would be fun, actually. Uh, maybe we'll do that in the fall. Maybe the Lord will give me vision on my sabbatical for that. <laughs> um, But one of the things that I want to state here is this is why we see that God's intention for marriage is that it would be a lifelong union, monogamous union between one man and one woman for a lifetime. That the fullness of creation, that God created them complementary to one another. And with, in regards to sex, it means a life of chastity outside of marriage, a life of fidelity in marriage. And here's the thing. I won't have time to address all the issues related to homosexuality and whatnot, but I know because it's such a pertinent issue, I did address this. If you are interested in the sermon on that, uh, last spring, if you go on our website under the SALT sermons, our college ministry, um, we did a series called Myths, Modern Myths, something like that, and I did the myth of love is love, and I directly addressed this topic. And so if that's something you want more teaching on, on, on how should we think biblically about homosexuality, same-sex desire, what is hope for me if I have same-sex desire, I would invite you to listen to that sermon because that would be beyond the scope of what I can cover this morning. But in Genesis 2, verses 19 and 20, God then brings home that incompleteness to Adam. So continue on in 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So now all of a sudden, God, there's only Adam. He begins gathering all the animals around. And whatever the man, and he wanted to see what he would call them, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And so what happens is Adam names all the animals, he brings them, God brings him all the animals. You can imagine, you know, the giraffe walks by, and there's a male giraffe and a female giraffe, and he, for some reason, he's like, giraffe, right? And there's a penguins march by, or I don't know, rats, all the animals, they march by, and Adam names each of them. And then as they're walking by, and he sees them with their perfect complement, then as they move on, then you can imagine as they all pass by, and then he's named them all, and Adam looks around, you can imagine what he thinks to himself is, what about me? What about me? Is there anyone who compliments me? And that's what we get next. Because then it continues in verse 21, So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. So God takes Adam, puts him to sleep, and he creates Eve out of him. She doesn't, he doesn't create Eve out of his, I think St. Augustine said this. He said he didn't take Eve out of his, his feet or out of his head, out of his ribs, so that he would be her complement or he, she would be his complement. That they would be complementary, not just in roles, though, but also sexually. They would complement one another. Now, what I love then is how he presents the woman to Adam. Verse 22, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, the way that I imagine this in my mind 
is that as he puts Adam to sleep, Adam goes to sleep wondering, Where, where's, where's my compliment? And there's kind of this drama building in the narrative here. What I love here is God's kind of setting the stage where Adam's going, uh, I'm naming all the animals, and then he goes, what about me? And then God, God says, well, let me set the stage here for this. This is one of the things I just love sometimes. If you read carefully in the Bible just the character of God and how he kind of delights in doing these things. Because God puts him to sleep, and then he creates a woman, but then what he does is I imagine him almost like being like Eve, Eve. Once he makes Eve, go stand behind that tree over there. And Adam, you know, wakes up. He's all groggy. Oh, wakes up. You know, what happened to my rib? Uh, <laughs> wakes up. And, and then he goes, hey, 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 Adam. You know how you're wondering? Who's the one for you? It's like, yeah. And he goes, how about her? And Eve steps out from behind the tree. A man sees woman. For the first time, and woman sees man. For the first time. It's kind of this grand unveiling and this moment that builds. And, and immediately what Adam does is he kind of, he's all Twitter-pated, right? And he breaks out in like a, almost like a rap or something. Like he just breaks out in song all of a sudden. And he, it says then in verse 23, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And, and, and what... So I remember when I was first learning Hebrew and I read this passage, and one thing that stuck out to me is that man in Hebrew is ish. Okay, so Adam's like, I, I, I am ish, man. And then woman is isha in Hebrew. And it's almost as if Adam, when he sees Eve, he goes, I am man, but you are ish, uh, right? Like, it's just kind of this memory. He's like, he doesn't even know how to describe it. He's like, you're like me, but so much better, right? And what I love about this in this passage is from the very beginning is you see this passion. You see this dizzying. Kind of time slows down. Kind of everything slows down around you. And, and, and he sees her, and immediately there's just this awe. There's this delight. It's a gift that God has given to humanity. Desire that a man has for a woman and a woman for a man, we'll get to the context, is something God created. Sexual desire is a part of God's good design, but then the next verse gives immediately the context or the parameters, or in other words, the garden. Sex is such a powerful desire, such a, you can you just use terms like primal desire, that it's so powerful that it must have a place where it can be life-giving. And so God immediately begins defining where, what that context looks like in verse 24. It says, therefore, a man, because of this delight, because of this created intent, because of this goodness, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Become one flesh means to be united physically, emotionally, spiritually, even economically, to be exclusive to one another, to in some ways on a mysterious level become one. The later Old Testament doesn't just describe sex. I mean, this is the interesting thing, I think, in biblically, because we, we as modern people like to think that we're more sophisticated, but we describe sex with term, you know, phrases like what? Like doing it, 
But in the Old Testament, sex then is described as knowing. Somebody went in and knew their wife, knew their husband. The, the Hebrew verb for yada, which means holistically, completely, all of life intermingled and entangled. It's very intimate. It's secure. And if you think about it, it's, it's meant to be that intermingling, that security, that giving of one to the other, that love, that intimacy is meant to be, that passion, that delight is meant to be actually the foundation not only of, of, of that marriage, but also then of the lives of those children, of, of the city that they're in, of the, to be the smallest unit in that city, and then to build civilizations around it. It's meant to be the very place where all of world civilizations are built. And if you think about it as well, like this delight is meant to be where children are produced, like procreation is a part of sex. Every human being is meant to be made from an act of love. That's profound. I, you know, when we talked a few weeks ago about um, the body and how God made the body, and one of the cool things is like we taste things, and God didn't just give us like taste, right? He gave us like taste to delight in and smells, and sometimes we don't want to smell things. Uh, there's certain smells that are a result of the fall, let's put it that way. Uh, but there are, in the same way, God, we procreate, we bring forth life through sex. We don't, we don't bud. You know, like there are, I remember re, uh, learning in biology class where like some plants just like bud. Like we don't just kind of one day or like we just touch fingers. Like let's procreate, mm, right? And then like a baby forms. There's passion. There's a giving of the self. There's expression. There's intimacy. There's an intermingling of lives, holistically, come together in sex. It's an amazing thing. God chose to design the world this way. Think about that. God chose to design the world that way. But here's the best part, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. No shame. They become one sexually, and yet there's no shame, no regret, complete vulnerability, nakedness before one another. We'll come back to that. This, though, first is God's creation, His design for sex. God's design for sex is that it would be a place of delight, that it would be a place of security where all, not when we give ourselves sexually, that our entire lives become intermingled. The Bible has a very high view of sex. What's meant to exist in that garden is a beautiful thing. It's not a dirty, nasty thing. It's not a degrading thing. It's not just some shameful thing. It's part of God's good design. And so God calls us to steward it. It's a gift. Yet, Obviously, it's also one of our deepest sources of shame, of pain, regret, because after all, we experience sex after the fall. So let's look at how we steward, how we redeem this gift of sex. Well, let's say before we can do that, let's like look at how, why it goes wrong or goes awry. So let's look at second, venturing outside the garden. Um, so I mentioned before I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I, so I have, like many of you, I came to an understanding of sex that was through 
predominantly, never through the Bible, it was predominantly through the lens. I remember in college, I actually got my first, like, had my first Bible, and I was becoming a Christian, and the first thing I did was I turned to the topical index in the back and looked up sex. That's what I did, first thing, <laughs> my first Bible, because I was like, I have no idea what the Bible says on this. My exposure, first exposure, I remember to sex was through going, finding in a closet a bunch of Playboys, hidden in a box somewhere. And so I remember that those images were the first uh, images, the first descriptions, the first presentation of sex I ever received. I, I remember that the articles that I read then were the first, giving me my first understanding about sex. Now, as I think about that, I almost wish, it seems like a world away. Because now we live in a world where sex is ubiquitous. That the touch of a, of a button on our phones at any moment, instantaneously, you don't, if it, as long as no one has anything in the house, then no one ever comes in contact with it. In other words, we live now in this age where sex is everywhere. As one person dubbed it, they called it a sexular age. Not secular, but sexular. That everything is understood even through the lens of sex. Now, before getting to some of the, the ways, that we, the distortions of sex that we have, the question is, how did we get here? And I just want to quickly chart out, point out a few things. Uh, many sociologists have, have pointed out that there's, uh, there are several things in the 20th century, because most of how we view sex now is completely different than how, even in cultures uh, that were uh, freer, or had, not freer, uh, more enslaved, but had uh, a more pagan view of sexuality. Uh, what, we still have a unique view of it and approach to it. And so one of the things that sociologists point out is that there's one technology that also began to change our understanding of sex. The 20th century, we will look back on as this place where technology exploded, uh, a century when it did. But we'll probably look at, when we talk about it, nuclear technology, transportation, We'll look at the, web, at, the, at the web and the internet. We'll look at all these things, and we'll immediately think of those technologies. But one of the most powerful, you could say species-altering, humanity-altering technologies that entered the scene in the 20th century was actually the pill, the birth control pill. Now, talk about contraceptives. This is not an anti-contraceptive sermon. That's a whole different conversation. But what it did do was it changed fundamentally how we began to relate to and think about sex. Because sex became something that could be removed, the consequences or the outcomes, the natural outcomes of sex could be removed from the act of sex. And not only was it that you wouldn't have children, but also now sex could take place outside of the confines of commitment, and on and on and on. Now, what that did, though, was it just allowed us to begin to redefine sex according to our desires, rather than according to the obvious design and natural reality of sex. And so over time, we've begun to define ourselves. Not only did we begin to define ourselves just psychologically, viewing our lives as whatever I desire becomes good and subjectively, but we began to understand even our desires predominantly because sex is such a strong desire. Our, even our understandings of ourselves psychologically became heavily sexualized. And so it's almost hard to even identify or understand ourselves in our day, especially right now if you're under the age of, let's say, 22 to understand yourselves without thinking about sex and sexual identity. Sex has become just right up front, always in our face. 
So with that, and I'll come back to some of those things, I want to talk about some of the distortions, some of the things that we've begun to believe about sex, and these affect all of us, whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're a, a widow, it affects all of us how we approach sex. So distortion number one, sex as placating an appetite. Sex as placating an appetite. The modern view of sex is that it's just a biological urge. It's an appetite like hunger or thirst. Uh, there was a song, uh, I almost, I'm not going to complete the whole lyric because um, I'm in a church, uh, but I remember in the 90s where it was, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's, yep, yep, you remember that song, right? So let's just do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. It's this view that sex is nothing more than animalistic appetite, desire, instinctual desire. And the thing is, if sex is merely a biological urge, if, if, if the only meaning and transcendent meaning that we've given to sex is something that's just something we've culturally constructed that we've given to it, or to control people, then why not just pursue it as an appetite? And obviously, to amplify it, the constant messaging, images, innuendo, they constantly are stirring up the desire, the hunger, the appetite. And sex is not less than an appetite, it's not less than a desire. But scripture presents sex as more than the sum of hormones. As we looked at in Genesis 2, it's a giving of the self. Scripture even in, in Ephesians 5 refers to sex as this union that is a mysterious union. There is something transcendent about it. There is something more than just the physical desire. And here's the thing, there is more to being a human than just placating our appetites. In, in fact, what you see, in, especially in the early pages of Genesis, you'll see this juxtaposition of this imagery of animals in Genesis 1 and 2 are called beasts of the field. And you'll see a juxtaposition again and again of man and beasts of the field. And as man gives in to his desire, he's referred to and described in the same way as the beasts of the field. In, in other words, what man is meant to do, God has designed us not to just merely be animalistic, but to be human beings who have desires. The question is never whether we have them. The question is how are we to utilize them? How are we to steward them? What are we to do with them? What are, how are we to respond with them? And to say to someone that if you have a desire, just give in to that desire is to end up dehumanizing them and to treat them as someone who doesn't have moral agency. As someone who can't rise above those desires. And what Scripture again and again God presents is you are made in the image of God. And with that, that means that, yes, I have gifted you with very intense desires. But they're to be used for my glory. They're to be used for your good. They're to be used within that garden. And if you venture beyond, you'll become death. But what happens if we treat sex as a mere appetite to placate is in that what we end up doing is we end up dehumanizing others. Distortion number two, sex as pleasing the self. Here's the thing. If I cultivate an attitude of sex that says it's just an appetite, a need, then my approach will be to please myself. And this can happen either, again, if you're 16 years old. This can happen if you're 46 years old. It can happen if you're 16 and single. This can happen if you're 46 and single or married. It's no wonder that in a hypersexualized society, one of the things that's rising with it is we're trying to figure out issues related to objectification. Objectifying 
people sexually, looking at them as objects. Because when others cease to be a potential partner, sex is meant to be a union where all of your life is brought in, a commitment. When we begin to see others as merely a means to satisfying a desire rather than a partner, then they become an object, an instrument to satisfy myself with. And then as a consequence, sex no longer becomes an act of love but lust. And the other, even in a marriage, can just become an object that's used. But one of the deep biblical truths about who God is, is that he is self-giving, that he's others-oriented. That, God's, that God comes, Jesus comes and he's a servant. There's always this others-oriented, self-giving love that's there. And so what God invites us into when we steward our sexuality is that we would not use it just to satisfy ourselves, that that wouldn't just turn inward of how I can use this desire just to gratify myself, but instead, how do I channel it in order to please others, in order to delight in others, in order to serve others, rather than just to please myself? We'll come back to that. But the third distortion then is that sex is as performative identity. One of the most pernicious aspects of how we approach sex today is that it's become central to our identities. We often hear language, when I, when I read articles on sexuality, I, I try to read a lot of secular articles just in terms of like dating trends with Tinder and and marriages and all kinds of alternative lifestyles and, and try to stay up on this. And one of the things that I consistently see is this language of finding ourselves. Sex is a way of discovering myself, of finding myself. And, and what happens when sex becomes, when I mean performative of our, of our identity, it means that when I perform sexually, I find myself. And it might not be that how I perform in a sexual act with another, but also my allure, my ability to attract someone my ability to get attention from others, my attractiveness becomes core to my identity of what is desirable, of what is valuable about me. It's why when we talk about stewarding our bodies, we had to spend so much time on addressing body image. Because so much of today, what's driving the body image trend is a desire to be sexually desirable. But what happens is it removes security from sex. What happens instead is that sex becomes an act. It becomes a performance. In other words, it's, it, sex ends up becoming this very insecure act because it's not, it's not within the confines of a lifetime commitment, but in that time, in that act, you're trying to earn the affection. You're trying to gain the love. You're trying to keep the person. And so the very act itself becomes insecure. It's amplified by pornography. I would really say, honestly, so I'll try to sometimes just go on Netflix and like watch a show and I'll get like half an episode in. I'm like, ah, I can't watch this. Like there's so a constantly imaging and messaging and innuendo that's constantly telling us that if we're not attractive, if we're not, it's not even just explicit pornography anymore, but just the constant sexual messaging that this is where you find your significance. But pornography and all these shows, they present an unrealistic portrayal of sex. They set ridiculous expectations. 
that they shape our approach over time. And as we're exposed to them, as they shape our approach, they, they shape how we engage in sex, and it leads to dehumanizing, denigrating ways of pursuing sex. Now, with all of this, and I guess I should say first that Scripture tells us ultimately that the desire to be, find an identity, to be significant, to be enough, we can never perform it. The way that sex has become the core of our performative identity now is the same way that, let's say, 50 years ago was being a good provider or being whatever the, 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 the Americana view of being a good person was. It's just the latest that we offer. But over and over again, Scripture warns us against trying to find our significance in another. It's why Scripture repeatedly tells us of God singing over us, God pursuing us, God desiring us, God, Jesus, giving himself for us in order to wash us and make us clean, in order to unite us to himself. The identity, in other words, that we're seeking, we're trying to perform is an identity that we can only, that we're trying to perform sexually is an identity that we can only get spiritually first in Christ. In other words, there is meant to be a spiritual union with God before a sexual union with another person. Fourth distortion, then, before we move on to stewardship, sex as a problem. So, because of the way that the hypersexular culture and how we approach it now has been a pendulum swing as well, where sometimes we can say sex is, sex is a shameful thing, sex is a bad thing, right? It's icky, nasty, dirty, so save it for the one you love right? That kind of message that you get. It's viewed as, and this is, a lot of ancient religions would have this, that sex is viewed as a part of our, kind of our lower nature. We talked about this with the body and how oftentimes the body is viewed as part of our lower nature. It's distinct from our higher spiritual nature, and therefore it's degrading, it's dirty. It's just a necessary evil for procreation. And so we shame having sexual desire when before Genesis 3, there was no shame per se for because you were designed with sexual desire. I would even argue that Christianity is the most, you could say, body positive, sex positive religion in world history. We have the God who, be, who came in human flesh in order to redeem us so we would be in, in, at the resurrection, have resurrected bodies. And that's why Scripture again and again and again presents sex and sexual desire within marriage as a beautiful thing that should be pursued. So here's how Scripture presents it. Here's a few just to get you kind of aware of how the Bible approaches sex. First, De Deuteronomy 24.5, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with an army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. You got a whole year off, a whole honeymoon for a year. You didn't work. Why? Because it was meant to be that you would come together and you would become physically one and you would have time to build that physical union and that home. It's an amazing law. It'd be kind of nice to have one of those today, right? But then it gets even better. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. 
Song of Solomon. Song of Songs, different titles it's given. At times throughout church history was actually, <laughs> they would actually remove it from Bibles because they didn't want kids reading it. Because it's spicy. Let's put it that way. Just a little sampling. Chapter 7, how beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. This is where after a chapter of the woman describing, literally starting at the head and working down the body and describing it metaphorically and her passion and desire for her husband's body, then the next chapter, the husband takes his turn describing the wife. And it says, says this, how beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. Go read Song of Solomon. You'll see that the Bible is not a prudish book. Scripture again and again delights, encourages us to delight within that garden. Sex is not a problem. Sex outside the garden is the problem. Sex within and pursuing by God's design is good, and it should be passionately pursued within a marriage. We should steward it. So, uh, now that that gets us a little hot under the collar, how do we... Uh, how do we steward sex? So how do we cultivate the garden? So first, uh, where I want to start with this is that we all come to this topic uh, and from various places. Like I said, I prayed, for some of us, it's a, it's a place of joy. Maybe perhaps right now you're in a season in your marriage where this is a season of joy and delight sexually. Perhaps it's a season of frustration, of, of difficulty. Perhaps it's, there are things in your past and difficulties Regrets, pains, guilt. And so when we come to this topic, it has to be addressed. It has to be healed. It's why the first step in stewarding sexual desire is, one, to pursue perfect purity. Now, I say this specifically because I want you, as soon as you read that sentence or phrase, pursue perfect purity, I want you to wonder what I mean by it. Because there is a perfect purity that is offered us in Christ before we can pursue any perfect purity when it comes physically to how we live our lives sexually. One of the, uh, in the New Testament, Paul addresses the Corinthians. Now, the context of the Corinthian church, it was an ancient Greek church. It was, uh, there were very, all kinds of sexual lifestyles. And so when all of a sudden he's got a church that's built up of people who've come out of, in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, out of this, this lifestyle of living all kinds of different sexual lifestyles. And now they've come to Christ and they're wondering, what do we do here? And they're trying to pursue purity. And what Paul says is what you first need is to pursue the perfect purity that's in Christ. And he says this to them. He says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Guys, such were some of us, and I include myself in that statement. 
many of us, we come to this topic and immediately some of these categories, maybe it was when this came up, you're like, I don't know, I'm just a swindler though. Maybe you are. Like he's being honest and truthful here. What we talk about all the time is that God doesn't just sweep everything under the rug. And you know why? Because our lives, until these things are actually dealt with from our past, we try to sweep them under the rug, but we just keep running and running and running and numbing and numbing and numbing and trying to escape it. And at the end of the day, just still hating ourselves because it's still there. So we need a God who actually deals with these things. And look what he says. He says, yes, so were some of you. Sexually broken. Regrets. Things you just wish you could wipe from your mind. He says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Your hope, if you have had homosexual tendencies, is not heterosexuality alone. Your hope, if you have sexual promiscuity, is not just getting yourself straight sexually. Your hope, if you're a liar, is not just to be honest. Your hope, if you're a swindler, is not just to be set right. Your hope, if you're a murderer, is not just to stop murdering. Your hope, ultimately, is first and foremost to be made pure by being washed by Jesus Christ and being made pure. It says sanctified. It's one of the only times where sanctified is past tense, that you were set apart completely, made completely holy. And when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see those things that run through your mind in the middle of the night. He sees his son's righteousness covering you. And this is why it says again and again that God sings over us, that he delights in us, that he pursues us, that he loves us, that he wants to completely remove us forever from the presence of sin. There is no stain that Christ cannot wash you of. And we need that for our souls so incredibly, deeply today. And we have it in Christ. And what happens when you see that Christ gave himself for you, became one with you, and you have that union, that changes how you pursue sexual purity. It does. Because it comes from a place of being satisfied and not trying to perform to get that identity. But then second, then we can begin protecting against what I'm going to call foxes entering the garden foxes. There's a, a verse in Song of Solomon that says this, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. What it's, it's saying there is that there are things in your life that the vineyard, the garden of intimacy, if you let them in, they will destroy it. So protect from them. Keep them out of the bedroom. Keep them out of your lives. So what does it look like? First singles and married. So singles, uh, Song of Solomon says eight times. It says this throughout. They say, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field. Not sure what that means. But that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. It says this again and again, talking to the young maidens and talking to the young men, saying, until it's time, do everything you can not to unnecessarily stir, arouse, awaken, love, temptation. Until it's time. When uh, there, there was an old book, I can't remember the title of it, but it had to do with, and it was one of the most helpful I ever read on sexual purity, and 
uh, it was real super practical, but it had this analogy in there where it talked about a sumo wrestler. And, and it, was, it was talking about how if, if you get into a ring, because sexual desire is so hard to grapple with and wrestle with and fight. And it said, when you get, if you get into a ring, if you're fighting a sumo wrestler, it feels like you're fighting a sumo wrestler. If, if that sumo wrestler is, you know, 500 pounds, then it's going to be really hard to fight it. It's powerful. So what they said is, don't feed it. Starve it. As you starve it and you expose yourself to less and less sexual material, as that gets smaller and smaller, all of a sudden it's like, well, the sumo wrestler is like a, a tiny 50-pound person, right? That'd be really small. Anyways, but a tiny person. And now I'm going to wrestle this thing. Now all of a sudden it's completely different. It's helpful to see we have so much messaging, so many things coming at us that I think we do in our day. It's almost like we go, well, it's so ubiquitous. I'm not even going to try anymore. Here's the thing. Hear me clearly. Do protect your mind and your heart. And it's not just with explicit images. It's with the narration. It's with whatever principles they're trying to lay down. Like, we, we do have to question these things, and we're going to be exposed to these things, but then we have to question them. Is that really true? Do I really get the outcome of life? Why is it that in every show where everyone gets to live sexually however they want, their parents are millionaires, and they all live on the beach? It seems like some of this isn't reality, right? Because it isn't. But yet it entices us. And so guard your mind. Don't let the foxes in. By the way, as well, one of the things is a mindset. In, Song of, in Proverbs 7, refers to the adulterous woman as consuming, hooking up with a guy, consuming him, and then licking her lips, wiping her lips, and walking away. And he's ruined. What Scripture presents is that it's not so much that they want you in order to love you, but understand that when somebody just wants to hook up, they are looking to consume you at the deepest level, to consume you in order to receive an identity. And they will wipe their lips and walk away. And here's the thing, it's a helpful way to think about when you're swiping through Tinder, when you're meeting someone at the bar and they come up and they talk to you, when you're on that business trip and you're there late at the bar and somebody comes up and begins flirting with you, slips you their key with the room number on it. to realize in that moment that you're about to be consumed not to experience pleasure. You'll be fleeting, but you'll be consumed. Marrieds, how do you protect? Let not let the foxes in. Uh, first, obviously, don't entertain an affair. And I mean that not, usually it's not, whoa, I'm getting ready physically to get intimate here with somebody. It starts usually with small things, emotional attachments. I have this analogy that probably Zach is going to be preaching on dating and marriage next week, which, by the way, part of the reason why we're doing sex this week, because we're doing, we did friendship, now sex, then dating, then marriage, and then parenting. Seems out of order, right? Well, one, I was going out of town. They're like, you're doing the sex talk. But two... The other thing, I was like, it actually fits here because ultimately sex is almost seen as, not, you almost could just put it before friendship. That's how culturally you usually treat it. It should be after marriage and before parenting. But that's why we have it here. But we'll be looking at dating next week. I'm really excited to hear Zach teach on that. And one of the things I think he might be hitting on is an analogy I've used several times uh, at Salt, which is that there are the way intimacy works in our lives, and marriage is important to understand this when it comes to engaging and building emotional intimacy with someone who's not your spouse. 
when the water, imagine a lake is a lake of intimacy, and there's water, this water in it is intimacy. There are three floating docks in your life. One is physical intimacy, one is for spiritual intimacy, one is for emotional. If you begin to build emotional and spiritual intimacy with someone, not your spouse, the waters rise and that dock of physical intimacy and desire for it will rise with it. And so one of the things in life is realizing, and there's, there's wisdom in that illustration for how you do dating and singleness, but also in, when it comes to engaging in relationships with others, married, be very careful. Foxes, it's not just at the moment of the physical sexual hookup. It's at the moment of entertaining the emotional connection because ultimately what really sex underneath is is that desire for intimacy and connection. And so in hard seasons of life where it feels dry in intimacy, in marriages, what we need to do, as we'll come back to, is we need to raise that level of intimacy in the, the physical and the spiritual, and that phys- or sorry, spiritual and emotional, and the physical will usually come with it. Now, the other thing I want to say about how to protect from foxes entering is not to weaponize sex. Not to weaponize sex in your marriage. And what I mean by weaponizing is withholding it in order to punish withholding it or only giving it in order to control and get what you want when you want it. Paul has this wisdom in 1 Corinthians again. He says, because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. When we become one in marriage, it means that our bodies are one another's and they're meant to be given in sexual intimacy regularly. And, and when there are times when there may be seasons of life, whether seeking the Lord or physical things or whatnot, where we say we can't, but we need to be on the same page regarding that. But here's the thing, don't use sex as a way to weaponize and to control, to withdraw in a way that just hurts or withdrawal in a way that just manipulates and gets what you want. That allows bitterness and performative tendencies to be foxes in your marriage that destroy the intimacy. Three, passionately and patiently pursue. Uh, we have to be open and talk to our spouse about where we're at sexually. Uh, one of the things that I remember we were about seven years into our marriage, and my wife said to me at one point, she said, we need to, we need to talk. I, for years, had been, when, whenever it was, okay, we're not going to be intimate, I would actually, I had this tendency that I even wasn't aware of a lot of times of just becoming emotionally cold. Of if, if, if it wasn't going to happen, then now all of a sudden I'm just going to emotionally withdraw, get cold, and I might not say anything, I might just kind of walk away, but all of a sudden I'd be cold. And over time, that felt manipulative, it felt hurtful right? Then I'm going to be warm if I get what I want. That was a very important conversation for us to have. A very important conversation that if we didn't have could be deadly for the trajectory of where that could go in our marriage. And here's the thing. In your marriage, you need to regularly be talking about what are those things that are actually with even in the garden are causing you to divide, are causing you to doubt, are actually causing a a crack in the foundation of your marriage to be talking about those things. One of the things we're going to be doing after this is sending out an email. It has several books and resources, and in there, there are a couple books that have 
uh, literally different kind of questions and things that you can walk through as couples that help with processing that. But I would encourage you to schedule regular date nights. As married couples, schedule regular date nights. And on those date nights, draw one another out. You must connect regularly, emotionally and spiritually, if you want to have a healthy sex life, or else it's going to feel out of whack, and it's going to feel forced, and it's going to feel manipulative. And so be pursuing the other. Then lastly, pursue delight. Uh, this would be, I guess, pursue pleasure, pursue delight. Uh, this is why you came, right, for the sermon. Uh, one of the things, if you're single, you can start today, pursuing the delight of your future spouse. Scripture talks about the cost of a spouse, of a wife, of a husband, as worth the price of a lifetime. That's why if you took someone's wife, you got to kill the person, Old Testament law, because they are worth your life. In other words, it is worth a life starting from the time you're a small child to be serving and seeking the delight and the goodness of your future spouse by one, praying for them, and two, and praying for their good, but also pursuing, thinking of them and pursuing them and saving yourself for them is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. You can pursue their delight in that way now and then trust God's timing for when that time would come. If you're married, you fight for delight in your spouse. You fight for delight in your spouse. One of the tricks I've learned because uh, when I'll go on sometimes social media, I've, I've learned because that's one of the places where I'll get caught where like my mind will start. I'll see something and my mind will start to, and I'll, I'll catch myself. Here's how I've actually kind of weaponized it against Satan is I will actually use social media now where when I get on it, I'll actually go to my wife's like Instagram page or to her Facebook page. I don't really, no one gets on Facebook anymore. Anyways, but on her Instagram page, and I'll go there and I'll start looking through pictures of our family. And here's why this is beautiful, because I'll see pictures of my wife. And what I'll also see is I'll see our children. I'll see memories of us together. I'll see things we've done. And here's why that's healthy, because my attraction for my wife when I'm married sexually is bound up with the life that we share with all the stresses, with all the ups, with all the downs, and you fight for delight by placing your focus and your eyes on them. So that's one thing that I've done regularly, and it turns my heart constantly back to delighting in my wife. And so fight for that delight in your spouse. Uh, the best advice I've ever been given as far as physical intimacy for another man was make sure, Matt, you touch her heart before you touch her body. You can write that down. It's, you can put that up in your bedroom. You can put it on the mirror. You can put it in your wallet, wherever. Touch your spouse's heart before you touch their body. It's one of the healthiest things you can do to constantly be coming back to that. But then when it comes to in the garden, you know, have fun. Uh, there, but here's a little perspective in closing on that. Uh, so Tim Keller, well-known pastor, actually just died about 10 days ago. He had a book uh, called The Meaning of Marriage, and his wife and him co-wrote it. And she had this statement in terms of pursuing pleasure of your spouse. thought it was beautiful. She said, now she's writing this in their 60s. So we came to realize that orgasm was great, especially climaxing together. But the awe, the wonder, the safety, and the joy of just being one is stirring and stunning even without that. And when we stopped trying to perform and just started trying to simply love one another in sex, things started to move ahead. We stopped worrying about our performance, and we stopped worrying about what we were getting and started to say, well, what can we do just to give something to the other? 
See, ultimately, the secret to, you could say, to great sex is that it's more than just pleasure. It is delighting in the gift of being one with one another. And here's the thing, if you steward that oneness and you let your sex life point to that deeper and more mysterious union, a union that will satisfy your soul more than the most intense physical pleasure and provide more security than the most loving embrace of another human being. The union, the oneness that you can have with Jesus Christ and his embrace, and that truth points us to the true end, the true and ultimate meaning of sex in this life. That one day our groom will bring us home and we'll be with him fully. And so in that sense, sex is a foretaste of the glory and the delight and the joy that is our future. And that is why we can turn from trying to break out of the garden, trying to constantly find that life that perhaps God is keeping us from, and instead turn and trust him and steward our sexual desires, our sexual intimacy with hope and with perseverance and with delight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, on this, this reality that is so palpable in our lives, Lord, for each of us, Spirit, would you, whatever it is in here, whether it's we need to think more deeply, read more deeply, repent more truly and genuinely, to turn more concretely, to gather others around us, to support us in doing so, whatever it might be, Spirit, would you guide us, where for each person in this room, would there be one action step, perhaps it's a conversation with their spouse, perhaps it's bringing in a friend, Lord, would you point us in that next step so we would take our next steps to st so we might take steps towards you and we might in that steward our sexual desires, sexual intimacy to your glory and our joy. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.